We're in the book of Psalms tonight, Psalm 69. I'm going to read the entire psalm, but you see the particular verse that we take our our sermon title from. Psalm 69, hear the perfect word of our perfect God. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, a psalm of David, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I've sunk in deep mire. There's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is to you who knows my folly, and my rungs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, I became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire. Do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me gall for my food, and my, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. They tell of the pain of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out from the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. It will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and they are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, what an amazing God you are. We thank you that you reveal yourself to man in nature.
We're especially thankful that you reveal yourself to us as a Savior in Holy Scripture. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would guide me, thou my great Jehovah, the words of my lips, my meditation of my heart, even my countenance, my tone, everything would be governed by you, Lord, both to bring you glory and to edify your people. Father, and as always, if there's anyone that's come into this convocation tonight that does not know you heretofore savingly, that today would be the day that you open their blind eyes, that they may see the beauty of Christ that we behold. Thank you, Lord God, for grace. We pray it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verse 9 is kind of our platform passage for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Obviously the words of Christ, if you know your New Testament, we'll, we'll get to that in just a bit. And just a little bit, the series that we're in. I think we're probably going to go, as I'm working through the series, initially I thought maybe maybe 10 sermons, maybe 12 sermons, and now as I'm walking through the 25 or so Messianic Psalms that we can directly find the New Testament counterpart where the particular Psalm is being quoted, attributed to being Christ. I think I'm going to take the 25 if the Lord wills. I mean, we always, you don't want to always walk around saying if the Lord wills, but I actually do think that all the time from the book of James, if the Lord wills. If I'm here next week, if I have strength, if you all are here next week. So everything in life is this, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, it's my intention to take roughly 25 sermons uh, in, in looking at Christ found in the Psalms. And you know that th- thus far, what we've considered is the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as I prayed, is the second person of the divine Godhead. We worship Christ. And he is Emmanuel. He is God come in the flesh. He forgives sins. You remember when... Jesus said, before Abraham was, and what did he say? In the Greek, ego, emi. And ego in Greek is I am, emi in Greek is I am. He said, I am that I am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, what did the Jews do? They picked up stones to kill him because he said that he's God. And I know sometimes people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God because he is God. And he is the second person, the divine Godhead. So we looked at the the divinity of Jesus Christ, the deity of the Jesus Christ. Our Savior is fully man and fully God. He can save to the uttermost. And as our Savior mediator is God, as God, he represents God to man. And then the second Psalm that we looked at, perhaps it was from Psalm 2, perhaps Psalm 8, it was the humanity of Jesus Christ. This is where the Gnostics got it wrong. Jesus Christ is fully man. He has a real body, a human body, and he has a real human soul. He is 100% man. He's not the archangel Michael. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons say. He's a real human being because he represents real human beings. Romans chapter 5 talks about the first Adam and the second Adam. What the first Adam failed, and we, in the New England primer, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Christ as the second Adam comes as a real man to represent real men and real women and he stands in our place. That's that substitutionary atoning kind of thing. So we looked at the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, 
The next thing that we looked at in the Psalm series is the delight of Christ. Jesus Christ says over and over and over again from the Psalms and then I think in in John chapter 8, I delight to do thy will. And you remember the book of Hebrews picks this up. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 10. Chapter 10 especially said, Here I am, Father, with the body that thou hast prepared for me. And he came for a sacrifice. It delighted the Lord Jesus Christ to enter into human flesh that he could purchase a people by his offering. That's that substitutionary atoning death. That's the purpose of the cross. And it was the delight of the Lord Jesus Christ to do the will of God. And we we talked about this before. When people say, I would like you to do thus and so, if it's pleasant to us, pleasant to our flesh, we generally like it. We think like this. Our flesh reasons like this. Pain is bad, pleasure is good. But that's not the rubric that the Lord Jesus Christ operates on. Everything that God wants is good. Everything that God does not want is bad. And that's how we have to reckon things. So it was the Father's will. Isaiah chapter 53. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. And it pleased the Son to be crushed because it pleased the Father. And that was the delight of of God come in the flesh. And we as Christ's servants, likewise, I prayed it. It was from from Paul. I want to say Philippians chapter uh, 1. Paul says whether whether I'm going to live or whether I die, whether I'm healthy, whether I'm sick, my whole goal is to please God. That's the delight of of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deity of Christ, humanity of Christ, delight of Christ. And then tonight, I wanted to look at this whole subject from verse 9, for the zeal of your house has consumed me. This is the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is a zealot. Now, we know that one of the apostles was Simon the Zealot, Zealot, I think, in the way that it was used, was a socio-political national zealot. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government through military means. And Jesus saves, essentially, a, a political zealot. And he turns him into a religious zealot. And so we're going to look at the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I say that, I want us to think of something. I'm aware, I'm aware that the word zeal, and particularly the word zealot, for the person who has zeal. Most often we think if you're a zealot, you're kind of like this wide-eyed fanatic. You're not rational. You're not even Christ-like. And and a lot of times we think Christ walked around like Placido Domingo. He never got upset. Everything was like this. And he was very kind of passive and lukewarm. Is that the Jesus of the Bible? It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus of the church of my youth. In the, in the Roman Catholic Church, that is exactly how my priest painted Jesus. Super passive, super laid back guy, very just walking around kind of like this. And then when I read the Bible at 26 years old, I'm like, this guy's flipping over tables. He's calling people vipers and, and woe unto you. This is a lot different than the Jesus I was taught as a Roman Catholic boy. And so I want us to see the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible has a zeal. But remember what MacArthur said, anything that God, John MacArthur, anything that God does is right. Anything Jesus Christ does is right, even if we don't understand it. So when Jesus says, the zeal of thy house has consumed me, it's good, it's right. But resist the notion that all zeal is bad zeal. Bad zeal is bad zeal. When it's not, with, when it's not held with love, with grace, 
with knowledge for the purpose of God, for the glory of God, that's bad. Uh, but we're going we're to look at something very, very zealous, uh, very, very good in the zeal of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to consider that. So I, I want to consider four things. I'll probably be top-heavy as I always am in my sermons, but I, I want to look at... Um, I want to look at zeal personified, which is essentially to prove to us that this particular psalm, even the imprecatory part, which I won't really talk about. Maybe, maybe we can do a, a series on imprecatory psalms. Maybe not. That, that would be too hard. But there's an imprecatory part. Imprecatory means cursing. Break their teeth, make them, cho- make their, uh, make them widows, make them orphans, that kind of a thing. It's a cursing kind of a psalm. And it's a psalm taken in the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ in holy judgment. It's kind of difficult to deal with. So we, we probably won't look at that. I want to look at zeal personified. I, we'll, we'll go to zeal defined, what, what we mean, what the Bible means when it says zeal, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And then we'll look at zeal described as Jesus Christ's zeal. We'll look at that. And then we'll look at perhaps zeal applied, how you and I to imitate the Lord Jesus. As the Apostle Peter says, we're to, we're to follow in his footsteps. And if he was zealous, then we should be properly zealous. If Jesus delighted, delights to do the will of God, even if the will of God is that we should suffer, then we should delight to do the will of God, even if we suffer. And I would argue, if we have sufficient zeal for God, then when God says we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then we would walk through with delight because it's the zeal of God that drives us to obey the will of God. So that's the four points that we're going to look at. At least that's my intention. Let's, there are a number of places within Psalm 69 that the New Testament writers are inspired by the same Holy Spirit that inspired the, the, the prophets, inspired the apostles. And the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, maybe Ephesians chapter 2, the whole Bible, the whole church is built on the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. And they're all preaching one main unified theme. The Bible has a glorious harmony to it. Are there, are there multitudes of subjects in the Bible? Yes. Diversity in the Bible? Yes. But if you know your Bible from Genesis 3.15 clear through to the end of the book of Revelation, there's, there's a... Go- there's a golden thread that runs through the Bible, and it's the Redeemer is coming. He's coming the first time. He's coming the second time. God will send in the Savior to crush the head of Satan to save his people. So that's the golden theme. And we're going to see that same Holy Spirit inspire New Testament writers to tell us, categorically tell us, that this verse, the zeal for thy house has consumed me, is indeed speaking about the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes, if you look at verse 4, Psalm 69, verse 4, the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ is unabated. The zeal that Christ has, and I'll just tell you, forecasting, it's for God. The zeal that Christ has for his heavenly Father is not abated or not dissipated when he receives the satanic hatred of the world. And look at what he says in verse 4. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. The New Testament 
in the book of John, John 15, which I'm going to read, categorically applies that. They hated me without cause. Jesus Christ was hated without cause. It quotes it in John 15. And I'm just going to say this. If you have non-Christian family, non-Christian friends, I have non-Christian family, non-Christian friends. They openly say they're not Christians. Um, they're Hindu, my, my Hindu family in my atheistical family in New England who, who say, I don't believe in Jesus. And you, you start to, to use the name Jesus. I am an atheist in my family. You just mention the name Jesus. Jesus. It's, it's like a trigger. It's an absolute trigger. They foam at the mouth. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, if you don't believe in God, why are you so animated if you think God is fiction? Why are you foaming at the mouth? You're foaming at the mouth because it's spiritual. You hate Christ without cause. No one's neutral regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you're either gathering for me or you scatter against me. There is no neutrality for Jesus Christ. You are either for Christ or you're against Christ. And if you're passive, all of us know people that are passive. Oh, I don't want to make a commitment. I'm just passive Polly. I'm just agnostic Andy. No, you're against you are against. If you are not for Christ, you're against. And so you either love the Lord Jesus Christ or you hate him. And if you hate the Lord Jesus, Jesus says, they hated me without what? Without cause. Because he's sinless. John 15. This is Jesus. Now, he's prepping his, his, he's prepping his preachers, but he's prepping all of his disciples. When Christians do things that are blameworthy, we're blameworthy. But there are many times you could be sweet as sugar and they'll still hate you even without cause because it's a spiritual warfare. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Christian, minister, they will, underline will, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know the Father. So sometimes you'll meet people, say, like a Muslim or monotheistic or a non-Christian Jew, monotheistic, say, oh, I love God the Father. The Bible says in 1 John 2 and 5, if you don't know the Son, you do not know the Father. If you do not love the Son, you do not love the Father. And Jesus says, they hate me, they hate you, because they don't know the Father. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin Now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me, Christ says, hates my father. So when you see people say, oh, the great Abrahamic religions, there's one great Abrahamic religion, the religion of the Bible, the religion that culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ, who hates me, hates my father. If if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father. But they've done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. And I'm just going to say, by way of kind of forward-looking application, without zeal, you cannot be hated for Christ's sake and sustain your profession of Christ. You cannot do it. If you do not have zeal for Christ and you're hated wrongly, you will shrink back. Zeal is the furnace. Zeal is the fire in the furnace that allows you to be abused wrongly for Christ's sake and still keep following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Then 
Psalm 69, verse 9, that talks about the zeal for thy house has consumed me. I just referenced this. This is from John chapter 2. This was what was so different than the church of my youth, the presentation of Jesus that I was raised with. Again, Jesus, the Bible is correct. Jesus, a, a bruised reed he wouldn't break. He wasn't out there yelling and screaming. That's not what I'm saying. But he was a man consumed with zeal for his heavenly father. He was not this Placido Domingo passive poly. That, that is not the Christ of the Bible. And it's not, it's, it's not what drove him to set his face, the Bible says, like flint in the face of satanic opposition, all the way to the cross. Jesus in the, in the garden weeps great drops of blood. How did he make it through that? How did he face being the wrath bearer for the sins of his people? How did he do it? For the zeal for thy house has consumed me. So Christ's zeal is holy, it's good, it's necessary, and all of us rejoice that Christ had this zeal. John 2. He's overturning the tables. Jesus, he, there's money changers, they're changing the shekels into the temple shekel, they're selling all of the animals because the Jews, this was one of the three pilgrim feasts that all the adult males were required to go to, they come, and so what what the Jews who are there to make merchandise do, they say, why be outside of the temple? Let's come into the court of the Gentiles. They're only Gentiles anyways. But the Bible says that the court of the Gentiles is for the prayer of the Gentiles to the God of heaven and earth. But they turn it into a marketplace. Jesus comes on the scene, and he, and this, he does this actually twice. He flips over the tables. He makes a scourge of, of cords. I think Matthew Henry says, I think this is true. I think he hits both animals and people. Some people say he only hits the animals. Um, I actually think he hits both, but that's just an aside. You think, would Jesus hit people with a, with a scourge? I think he would. I, one of my favorite prophets in the Bible is Nehemiah. And, and when ne- they get brought back from captivity, the first thing the rich Jews do is they enslave and abuse the poor Jews, and then they intermarry. The exact same thing that got them taken off to Babylonian captivity. And the Bible says, and Nehemiah grabbed them by their beards and ripped their beards up and hit them. That's zeal. That's zeal for the Lord. And so Jesus flips over these tables. He casts out the animals. He casts out the men because they're turning the house of God into a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, verse 9, is pointing to Jesus Christ. So we've hit two times. So we're looking at, when, when we want to talk about truth, Christ is truth personified. In John 14, it's not just he has truth, he's, he's truth personified. John 14, 1 through 6, sword drill. I am the way, I am the way, ego in me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He's he's life personified. He's truth personified. He's zeal personified. He's love personified. Remember, one of the disciples said, Lord, we want to see the Father. And what did he say? I've been with you for so long. If you see me, you see the Father. So when we're talking about love, what does love look like? It looks like that. What does zeal look like? It looks like that. It looks like Christ. To see Christ is to see truth in the flesh, in the person, is the God-man. 
And so the, these particular psalms are showing us zeal personified, which is all bound up in Christ. We can't, it is impossible to make too much of Christ. It is impossible to make too much of Christ. We can't speak about him enough. We can't love him enough. We can't serve him enough. It is not possible to get to the depths of the riches and the glory and the blessings that belong in Jesus. We, we could live a million lifetimes. And then I'll just reference it. They gave him gall to drink on the cross. They're mocking him. And, and two New Testament writers, Matthew and John, say this refers to what they tried to give him on the cross. They're mocking him. You remember what the priest did when Jesus is on the cross and they're walking around and they say, if you are the Christ, get down from there. And they say, look, he's calling on Elijah. Someone get him some wine. We're, we're, having, we're having a field day. Beloved, can, can you imagine looking at a human being on a cross, crucified? One of the writers that I studied many years ago said the cross was not way up high. It was only like three foot off the ground. So you're almost looking at him. It's not high, high. It's not up like this. He, he's maybe a foot or three above the ground, and you're, you're almost right at him. Can you imagine looking at he, Christ was Christ was crucified naked. They, they rolled dice for his undergarments. He didn't have any clothes on. I know most crucifixes have him with a loincloth. He didn't have a loincloth on. He was naked. Can you imagine looking at a naked human being who they nailed to a cross, they're spitting on him, they stab him with a spear, and they say, get down from the cross and then we'll believe in you. And they, they, to add insult to injury, they give him this gall to drink. Everything's applied to him. How did Jesus Christ continue to, to give up the ghost on the cross? He's the God man. He could, have, he could have turned all of those oppressors into dust. What made him go through with the will of God to the very end to give up his spirit? What made him do it? It was the zeal. It was the zeal. So he is zeal personified. Now, I've kind of been implying what zeal is all along, but let me see if I can define it. Here's an English definition of zeal. Zeal is great desire, great energy, or enthusiasm. It's all, that's all important. In the pursuit of a cause or an, or an objective or a goal, zeal is passion. I know John Calvin has a whole section in his um, Calvin's Institutes. He'll say things like this, and sometimes keyboard theologians get this wrong. They'll say, he says, God has no passions. But he means he doesn't have a passion like a, like, like a fallen human being, like, oh, I, I can't believe that happened. I'm going to break furniture. Nothing catches God off by surprise. So if you read Calvin and Calvin says God has no passion, say, aha, Pastor John is wrong. The, the psalmist was wrong. This is not God. Christ did, doesn't have zeal. You're wrong. Go slow. Read through John, John Cal, Calvin's Institutes in the right context. So we're looking at zeal is passion or great intensity of emotion. Now, I know I get myself in trouble all the time. We're, we're Presbyterians. We don't want to have intense emotion. I am in a, a Presbyterian that wants intense, intense emotion. I want to intensely love God. I want to intensely hate sin. I want to intensely love my neighbor. That's zeal. And we're going to talk about the counterpart of that, and I'm going to convince you, you don't want the counterpart of that. So this is intense 
emotion, uh, pursuing a, an objective, a, a, a goal. It's the, it's the intense seeking, the untiring pursuit of a goal. It's the intense devotion to a cause. That's what zeal is. Intense devotion to a cause. Let me ask every wife here, every woman who's married, do you want your husband to be intensely devoted to you in your marriage? Yes or no? Only you. He is intensely devoted when he said, I love you no matter what, till death do us part. Only you. You want that or no? Of course you want that. This is, this is an unwavering desire to satisfy the goal. And that's what zeal is. And so synonyms, eagerness, devotion, diligence, determination, fervor. What's the opposite of zeal? And you'll see that the opposite of zeal religiously is a very bad thing. What's the opposite of zeal? What was the church? Revelation 2 or 3, I forget which. Is it the church of Laodicea? I forget which. They're lukewarm. Which church is lukewarm? They're kind of, well, you know, you don't want to be too intense and everything in moderation. You have half enough world, enough sin, enough holiness, a little Jesus, a little devil, just, just moderation. Let's make it all moderate. What did he say? Lukewarm is the opposite of zeal. What did Jesus say? For someone that says, don't be a zealous Christian, don't listen to a person that says, don't be a zealous Christian. In the way that they tell you this is, listen, you want to woo people? You don't want to be this wide-eyed fanatic. I'm not arguing for being a wide-eyed fanatic. But I am arguing that the Bible argues to be singularly devoted to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To be singularly devoted to Jesus Christ in, in his cross. It's not that everybody's a minister. It's not that everybody's a preacher or any of that. If you're a Christian woman, you're, de- you're devoted in your life to Jesus. If you're a Christian mom, you're going to raise the best kids you can because you're devoted to Jesus. If you're a bricklayer, you're going to lay bricks the best you can because you're, you're zealous for Christ. One man said, I think it was J.C. Ryle. JC, if you think I'm off base, there's a book, Practical Religion. If you think I'm off base, um, he has a treatise in there, a lecture, J.C. Ryle. And he's no wide-eyed fanatic. He argues from Galatians 4, I think verse 8. Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be zealous. And you know, typical Ryle fashion, are you fighting? He has a, he has a treatise, are you fighting? Uh, those kind of things. Uh, are you weary? Are you sick? And then he has a section, are you zealous? He has a whole lecture series on that where he argues that our Christ is zealous for the glory of God. We as Christians should be zealous. And he calls it singleness of mind, that we're a man of one thing. And it's not that I'm just walking around reading the Bible, but the love of Christ compels me, whatever venue that we're in, to live for his glory in all the venues that God brings us in. That's what zeal is. And the counterpart of that is lukewarmness, which Jesus says, if you think that you are a heaven-bound Christian and you're lukewarm for Jesus, lukewarm for his cause, what does he say he's going to do? He will spit you out. He will spit you out. So the people that say, you know, Jesus, yeah, yeah, 
I'm a Christian, yeah. I, w- I go to church on Easter, go to church on Christmas. I know there is a Bible. I don't know where it is, but I know there is one. Don't get me wrong. I'm, a, I'm not a heathen. I'm not a pagan. I'm a Christian. Where's your zeal? Oh, and, and people that object to zeal, watch them watch football. Watch them when a political rally comes on. They have zeal. Oh, they'll show you what they're zealous for. They're zealous for the, their, their candidate. They're zealous for their team. They're zealous for their school. They're zealous for their home. Christ is zealous for God. And we should be zealous for God come in the flesh. And in, in lukewarm, another term is apathy, indifference. Do you want to be indifferent with your Christian faith? So that's the definition. Both the Hebrew and the Greek, the Greek is, the, is just the transliteration. It's zealous is what it is. And the Hebrew word, I won't even try to pronounce the Hebrew word, I'll butcher it. But both in the Greek and the Hebrew, it carries with it because it can, it can mean a couple of different things in context. It can mean zealous or it can mean jealous. Is all jealousy bad? And mostly we think jealousy is bad. You think, if you're, again, to use the marriage. Is it, is it all wrong or all bad of a husband to be jealous for his wife? Now, you don't want your wife to be thinking like bad thoughts about your wife, but you want to be, I want you, I don't want anyone in, that's taking your love from me. You belong to me and I belong to you. I'm jealous for you. God says he's a jealous God. That is coupled with this notion of zeal. I'm only for God. And anything that comes between me and God, I hate. I'm passionately in love with God and I'm passionately in hate with anything that's anti-God. I'm jealous for God. Does that make sense? You have a mother and a father. And sometimes for us as grown children, we know our mother and father's sins and shortcomings. At least we think we do. And we talk with our brothers and sisters. Mom, is, mom did this. Dad did this. Mom did this. Dad did this. And we chuckle sometimes. But if someone else outside of the family brings up one of our parents' character flaws, what do we do? That's my mother. That's my father. What's the difference? Is your mother and your father, and you're jealous for their honor, you're jealous for their name, because why? You love them, and why are the other people not jealous or zealous for them? Because they don't love them. So when we look at the zeal that Christ has for God, which is what it is, He's zealous for God. Only you. Everything that redounds to your glory, I'm passionate about. Everything that strikes against your glory, I'm passionate against. Again, I know I'm kind of an excitable fellow, but I don't mean that all zeal has to look like your eyeballs get like this and you get animated. I gesticulate madly with my hands because I think there must have been an Italian somewhere in my family, but I just gesticulate madly. It's how I express myself. But not everyone has to gesticulate madly or outwardly verbose or anything like that. But the notion is this intense devotion to this one, to God, to his cause, to his honor, and to hate intensely anything that strikes against it. J.C. Ryle, again, I recommend this reading to you. He says, zeal is so, the zeal that Christ has for God is so misunderstood by men. 
Unregenerate men, when they consider the God of the Bible, they always reckon wrongly. But he argues even the believer doesn't really get this. Is sin utterly grotesque to you? When you see sin, hear sin, taste sin, is it gross to you? Do you recoil as the black plague? No. No. Why? We are not three times holy like Christ. Ryle argues that Christ has perfect zeal for God because Christ, who is God come in the flesh, sees God clearly. Sees him clearly. How much do we love God? This much. How much do we hate sin? This much. The Bible says to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. How how many of us want to just die right now so we can be in presence with the Lord? Nobody's raising their hands. But here is Christ, God come in the flesh, with no sin to obscure God. I, 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 I recommend to you, it's a mind blower, read our secondary standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is on God and on the Trinity. It has three articles, three paragraphs. Read, article, read paragraph 1 and 2 especially. Uh, paragraph 3 is the, is the Trinity. Read those three chapters. Re- read those three articles, three uh, paragraphs, with your Bible open. It's God. God is infinite in knowledge. He's infinite in mercy. He's infinite in power. Most terrible, most awesome, most merciful. And Christ sees all of that. That's why he has zeal, singleness of devotion, a passionate love for his heavenly father. And he's passionately against everything that his heavenly father hates. That's what we see. It's the singleness of purpose, but it's a singleness for God, for the God of the Bible, for his heavenly father for the honor of God. Um, I, I said this morning, I, I have it on the brain, Charles Spurgeon. I have a friend. He's a very good, good friend. He's well-meaning. He always tells me, slow down, Johnny. Slow down. You're going to burn out. You're going to have a heart attack at 59. You've you got to pace yourself because the goal of life is to, is to live long. I think it was Gardner Spring that said the goal of life is not to live long. The goal of life is to live well. The goal of life is to live for Christ. It was George Whitfield or somebody like that. And I think it was Neil Young. I don't like to quote Neil Young. But uh, it was Neil Young that picked up a statement from George Whitfield. It, it, it's better to wear out than rust. It's better to wear out in the cause of Jesus Christ than to rust with no use for the kingdom of Jesus. It's better to to live zealously for the the Lord Jesus Christ and flame out than live lukewarmly to your as old as Methuselah and have done no good for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus um, Christ. So a little bit of those quotes. So this is zeal, um, zeal for the Lord Jesus. You remember the way that Jesus puts it sometimes, Luke 12. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo. I am distressed until it's accomplished. It's, beloved, without zeal, you're not going to stay married. Without zeal, you're, you're not going to walk through the fire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Without zeal, you're not going to live in this antichrist world. We need a passion for God, 
passion for Christ, a passion to love people for Christ's sake. That's the fire in the belly. That's the fire in the furnace. Jesus says, I'm distressed to go to the cross. It's zeal, holy zeal, godly zeal, devotion to the goal, devotion to the cause. You know the Crusades, pick up the cross, pick up the cross. Well, I, I'm, not an, I am not even quasi an expert on the, the Crusades. You, and, the, and the Puritans would say, you could get people to wade through blood for, for, for a medal. People, oh, well, let's kill everybody for Jesus' sake. You can get people to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's wrong zeal. That's wrong zeal. The Christian religion is not, we're going to kill you for Christ's sake. The Christian religion is, I'm going to die. I'm going to give myself in the service of Jesus Christ, hoping that you would receive the Christ who has died for you. That's Christian zeal. It's not killing people. It's expending yourself for the God who has died and risen in our place. And Christ says, it's zeal. I, I'm desirous to go to the cross to purchase my children. And I, I just will say this. Without zeal, you will, you will fall into a snare of worldliness. The devil is fishing for you. you. You know this already. And the world is being moved along by the devil. They're fishing for you. And people say, well, you know, is, is sexual sin the worst sin? I'll kind of paraphrase the singers that was saying of David. They, they said of Saul, Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his ten thousands. Sexual sin kills its thousands, but worldliness kills its ten thousands. Oh, I'm not going to go on the internet. I'm not going to look at the bad things. Good, you shouldn't. But it's worldliness. I just give my heart to the world. Without a proper zeal keeping us from using lawful things unlawfully, that's the snare. So Jesus said, remember the guys who said, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And what did Jesus say? And this is zeal. Zeal means singleness of purpose. He is singleness of purpose. I've come here to purchase my people, to please my father. And someone says, hey, could you get involved in a family dispute about money? Can you, get, can you do that? What does Jesus say? What is that to me? This is not my job. And then he turns around and gives him a, a, a parable, a rebuke. Superabundance of things is not your life. You see, without zeal, you're going to get pulled away as a Christian. And I'm a Christian minister, obviously. I have a calling from God upon my life. All Christian ministers do. I, have, I know the ministry that Christ has called me to. I have people all the time. What about this pastor? Can we go to this political thing? And can you bless that Republican? And can you do this? No, I can't. Can you do crown financial in the pulpit instead of the gospel? No, I can't. What is this to me? This is not my job. I have this job to serve Christ, to serve Christ's people. I don't get in that. Well, you're being a pain in the neck. No, I am passionate for this. And you don't have passion for the other. No, I have passion against the other. If I was doing, let's say, if I was a part-time doctor, part-time preacher, part-time mechanic, will you want that from your preacher? You want your doctor to be a part-time mechanic, lobster fisherman? You want him to be devoted to the cause? Yes, you do. And so when we have zeal like Christ, it causes us to stay in the narrow, the narrow path of duty. And when people say, hey, how's about this? How about you dissipate your affections and your activities over there? What do you have to say? That's not my job, man. 
in a loving kind of way, in a non-offensive kind of way. And people say, but I want to do that. Then you do it. I have a job to do. I have a job to do. Who was the guy who said to Elijah, Elijah, come down and talk to us. I forget which. And what, he said, what did he say? He paraphrased. I have big stuff to do. I'm too busy. I'm not coming down. That's zeal. Again, it's not the wide-eyed lunatic. It's a passion that keeps you running for that one goal. Many of us are just too dissipated in our thoughts. And what did Jesus say when Mary's sitting at her feet and Martha's walking around? I've got to clean the house. I've got to get the, the pork chops out. JK, no pork chops. And what did he say? One thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. At the end of our life, no one's going to say, hey, did you wish you'd get that master's degree? Do you wish you would have bought that vacation home back up in Cape Cod when you had the dough? Did you wish you did this? Did you wish you rode a bull and did all these foolish things? Did you wish you did that? No one's going to do that. Devoted to Christ. You singleness of purpose for Christ. Christ in your marriage. Christ in your family. Christ in your job. Christ in your pulpit. Christ in the way you eat. Christ in the way you vote. Everything. Because we're passionate for him. Because he was passionate for us. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.